changes. What's the Word? Brought to you by Columbia Baptist Church in Columbia, Kentucky on 101.9 WAIN. I am Randy Johnson, the senior pastor at Columbia Baptist Church, and thank you for joining us every Wednesday night at 6 o'clock right here on 101.9 WAIN. Good evening, everyone. This is Randy Johnson, your host, senior pastor Columbia Baptist Church, and so very thankful for you joining me this evening on 101.9 WAIN, one of my favorite spots on the radio dial along with 1270 AM, that's where you can find this show every Wednesday night at 6 o'clock. Or you could go to 1019wain.com and find it there. Now, a couple of things, just to tell you right off the bat, I will mention this later on in the show because I like to remind you of these things. But if, for whatever reason, you start listening Maybe you're in your car right now. Maybe you're tuned in on a smart device or computer. And for whatever reason, you have to hang up on me. And you can't finish listening to the entire show. I understand. But I take the entire one-hour show, and I put it on my podcast every Thursday morning. So that means you can have access to the entire show and to every show that I've ever done called What's the Word, it's right there on my podcast. Now, you can find that podcast at anchor.fm backslash walk this way. Some people call it a forward slash. I call it a backward slash. Potato, potato. But anchor.fm, that website, hosts my podcast, and they distribute it to now I'm up to, I think, 10 different platforms like Apple, Google, Spotify. Those are kind of the more popular ones. But you may have your own way of listening to podcasts. Maybe you have an app that you uh, download some uh, podcasts on. However it is that you find them, uh, search for mine. It's uh, Dr. Randy Johnson, I think, is some of the tag words in it. But it's called Walk This Way. And I would love for you to find that. Not only that, but also because on the podcast called Walk This Way, you can find all kinds of messages that I've preached as the senior pastor of Columbia Baptist Church. So there's lots of material there, lots to point your attention to. I'll mention that later in the show, but I always like to say that up front because sometimes you find a show, you start with it, and you think, wow, I don't have a whole hour to drive around or to sit behind my computer and, you know, I've got to do other things. And I understand that, but I just want you to know that there is more available just in case you need to find the rest of it. Well, I say this a lot and it happens to be true, but there are just some nights that I feel like I've got more material to cover than I have time to cover it. And tonight is no different. Tonight is a little bit all over the map, though, in terms of some of the stuff that I want to talk about. Last week, for those of you that tuned in or if you caught it on the podcast, last week I talked about the generation, uh, the, the current younger generation in their 20s and early 30s, that the generation that has said that half of them believe it's wrong to share their faith with someone who practices another faith other than Christianity. Then I went into a description of the chapters of the book of Revelation, just kind of how the, the tribulation is going to be laid out. So if you are, are interested in hearing either of those two subjects, you can go to anchor.fm backslash walk this way. And you can find on my podcast last Wednesday night's radio show. Well, on Sunday nights, I have been walking through some Bible study material, some passages of scripture on what my family pastor and I have called iconic, it's an iconic series, where we're taking iconic elements 
in the Bible. Many of them are found in the Old Testament, but some in the Old and the New. But iconic elements in the Bible, whether they're people, whether they're places, just some kind of, you know, something that you would say, hey, I know a little something about that, but I bet I don't know everything. And we've taken some of these concepts and we've really just kind of given more information on Sunday nights than we can, can really do in an hour. Those are also on our Facebook page, by the way, or at least my teachings have been uploaded on Facebook because we do a Facebook Live, and they're also on our church website, ColumbiaBaptist.com. But all that to say this, the last two Sunday nights, so last Sunday, a week and a half ago, I covered the subject, Angels and Demons. And I talked about what angels are, you know, what they do, how they behave, and then went through that, those same sets of questions about demons. Well, I had some material to discuss what the Bible says about Satan. And I kind of put that aside because that was going to be for the next week, what I did this past Sunday, just a few nights ago. And it was so fascinating um, not because the study of Satan and demons and even angels in and of itself is fascinating, but it's fascinating to read verses of Scripture that really frames the identity of these, what we kind of almost look at as characters in the Bible. I mean, angels even to a degree are like, are beings or characters that we have come to understand something about. And some of that comes from the Bible. Some of it comes from just random stories or movies or songs. And we almost have painted this picture of angels and demons and even Satan himself. What I want to do for you tonight is I want to share a little information about what the Bible says about Satan. And I, and I particularly want to read to you and highlight two passages of Scripture in the Old Testament that have a tremendous amount of material. And, and, I, and I have no doubt, unless you yourself have studied these in-depthly, I have no doubt that if you know anything about what the Bible says about who Satan is, I bet there are things in these two passages of Scripture that you will say, I didn't know that. Really, really fascinating. One is in the book of Isaiah, the other is in the book of Ezekiel. So that is on tap for tonight, a little later on in the show. Another topic that I want to share with you tonight is about the Bible itself. Because listen, everything we know essentially about God, about creation, about how God's character is seen in the creation around us and how he deals with people. I mean, in all honesty, much, if not practically all, of what we genuinely know and understand about the character and the nature of God and salvation and who Jesus was, it comes from the Bible. There's very little uh, that is, is known or is um, trusted, is a good word to say, outside of the, the bounds of Scripture in terms of just history. There are some, for sure, but the reliability of the Bible, because it is God's Word and because it has been preserved and protected is such a rich resource to know about God and about human history and about God's story of interacting with his people. But, you know, sometimes you have to just stop and think, okay, what do I really believe about the Bible? Not what do I believe about what the Bible says. That's one question. But to back up a moment and say, but do I actually believe in what the Bible is? And what is it? And so that's a topic that I really want to talk a little bit about tonight because I do think that a lot of us 
who would say, hey, I'm a Bible-believing Christian. That's a, a phrase a lot of people use. I'm a born-again Christian. I am a, 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 a follower of Jesus, and I go to a Bible-believing church. You know, a lot of us say those kinds of things, but what does that mean? And when you say you believe the Bible, do you really believe the Bible, or do you believe a certain version, some would say a perversion, of the Bible. You know, I look on online and there are quite a few that uh, preachers and teachers and churches around the United States that are very anti certain versions of the Bible and almost to the point that their worship and their preaching is much more about a version of the Bible than it is about Jesus and about the one true and living God of the Bible. And so I want to talk a little bit about that and also understand what is the Bible's place and and kind of understand that a little bit more. So you've picked a great night to be a part of this radio show. We're just getting ramped up. This should be a lot of fun. I want to begin by thanking the sweet ladies over at Adair Drug. And I appreciate the ministry that they have to our community. They help sponsor this radio show, and I'm thankful for them. I want to thank the family of Grissom Martin Funeral Home. And I know that many of you have been praying for them in these last couple of months, and please continue to do so. Uh, but they are a, a wonderful group uh, that really are, they are like family to me, to one another, and uh, they do a wonderful job of making all that come into their business feel like family. And so they certainly do a, a wonderful job and have a great, uh, not only a business, but is a great ministry to our community. And so if you have any of those uh, funeral planning needs, or if there is something sudden in your family uh, and someone passes away and you don't have or they didn't have any plans made, please go and see the folks at Grissom Martin Funeral Home. They will take great care of you, excellent care of you, and love you. And they also help to sponsor this show. And, of course, the wonderful people at Columbia Baptist Church that I have the privilege of pastoring. They sponsor this show, and our church has had a radio presence for I don't even know how long. It has been many, many, many years. I pastored Columbia Baptist Church from 2002 to 2008, and that was one of the first things that they mentioned, not one of the first, but I mean, it was early on in our conversation uh, before I became their pastor, you know, I'm just getting information about the church, you know, tell me a little bit about the church, its ministry, what it does, and all of the different things that it does. One of the things that they mentioned was the, the radio presence in our community, and my goodness, I, I definitely am thankful to be able to be a part of that not just on Sunday morning, but also now on Wednesday night. And so I appreciate you joining me and appreciate those that help to make this possible. So to kind of begin, it really even before we can understand issues about the tribulation, you know, as I covered last week, issues about, you know, what does the Bible say about, about Satan and demons and angels and these kinds of things? We have to really understand what the Bible is. Now, to really understand that, you have to have the simplest answer possible. And the Bible says about itself that it is the Word of God. It is a collection of books, 66 total, 37 in the Old Testament, 29 in the New. And these two collections, Old and New Testament, were written in Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the New Testament, and a little bit of Aramaic as well. But these languages, these authors that wrote these books, the Bible says they were inspired and moved along. It's to use a phrase found in, uh, in the book of Peter, Second uh, Peter. They were moved along by the Holy Spirit that they were, as, as Paul says in 1 Timothy, inspired by. 
So we understand these phrases and these words to say that the Holy Spirit, God himself, moved along, inspired, and led these men to write what they wrote. Interestingly enough, each Bible uh, book writer, whether it was a prophet, whether it was a king, or it was a gospel writer, or a missionary like the Apostle Paul, or a fisherman like Peter, you know, no matter, or tax collector like Matthew, or doctor like Luke, you know, all of these different professions, all of these Bible book writers wrote what they wanted to write, but they also wrote what God wanted them to write. It's a fascinating tension found in every single book in the Bible. The Bible says that it is inspired and infallible. So there is no mixture of error. So what God has breathed out, what he has inspired to be written is perfect. I heard a, a pastor many years ago say that God does not have bad breath. So he doesn't make any mistakes when he breathed out what he desired to be written. So that in and of itself, when you understand that and you're kind of flipping through the Bible, whether it's a book like Job or Psalms or Ezekiel or Matthew or, you know, first and second Peter, and no matter what the style of writing is, you are reading words that were written and inspired by God himself. So it's just a fascinating all-time amazing collection of the Word of God written by those who were inspired by God at a certain time in their life, at a certain time in human history, to speak a word and a message to those at the moment of what God wanted them to hear, but it is still applicable, it is still living and active, it is still able to be taught and preached and applied even all these years later. So here's the question. If that's what you believe about the Bible, because that's what the Bible says about itself, and if you believe what the Bible says about itself, then how important is the Bible to you? There have been numerous studies, way too many for me to even reflect on tonight. But I came across one that LifeWay, which is the company that provides resources for Southern Baptist churches, Bible, Bible study materials and things like that, they did a study several years ago, a couple of years ago, and it was done by a division of LifeWay, just simply called LifeWay Research, and here was the question. How often do you read the Bible? Now, I know some of these percentages are may or may not stick in your brain. But 32%, so a third, one out of every three people that were asked, how often do you read your Bible? They said every day. Now, we're not talking necessarily about the volume of how much are they reading. Some of them may just read a verse. Some of them may read a few verses but they are reading the Bible. 27%, so almost one out of three, more like one out of four, said a few times a week. Okay, so the, 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 the best, <laughs> the highest percentage is the 32%. All, right at a third say, I read it every day. That was the best. 27%. Nah, a few times a week. Now we're getting fewer and also fewer, meaning fewer in times during the week and also fewer in number. 12%, one out of 10 people said, I read it once a week. 11%, about one out of 10 people said, a few times a month. 5% said once a month. And 12% of Protestant churchgoers, this is who they asked. So this would be Presbyterian, Methodist, Baptist, 
Lutheran, you know, these are Protestant denominational churches. 12% of people said rarely or never. So you have a third of people that sit in a pew and come to church in a Protestant denomination, and we could say one out of every three of you have read the Bible every day this week. The other two out of three fall somewhere in the rest of that category. Either a few times, once a week, a few times a month, once a month, or never, or rarely. Now, why is that important? Well, let's just, let, let's just talk about this for just a moment. I, I don't want to belabor this, but this is important in thinking about if the Bible is exactly what the Bible says that it is, if it is the living, active, life-changing message of God that was applicable 4,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, when some of these chapters and verses were written and changed people's lives then and can change people's lives today, then my question then would be, if you believe that, then how often do you turn to that collection of books and say, God, I need you to speak to me. I need you and your word to change me. Now, listen, I think there's a couple of reasons why people don't read the Bible as often as they probably should. I think probably the main reason is we don't make time. I mean, let's be honest. We don't live in a slow society. I don't care what community you live in. You are as busy as you want to be. And you have as much on your plate as you allow to be on your plate. Now, some of us may feel as though stuff that's on our plate is there because we have a lot of responsibility. We have people at home. We have a lot going on at work. We have people to take care of. We have places to go, things to do. When am I going to find time to read the Bible? There again, if we all have 24 hours in our day, and if we all have seven days in our week, then when are we going to find time to prioritize to read the Bible? So that's kind of the first stage. The second stage of it is, if I believe what the Bible says about itself, then my first question of myself is, do I prioritize my time to read it? Once I figure that out, then the second question and the second issue that I deal with then is, do I really believe in what the Bible says? Because listen, I've met, oh, I don't know, hundreds of people that would look me right in the face and say, Pastor, I read the Bible. I, I, I know what the Bible says. I can quote verses in the Bible. I can quote chapters out of the Bible. And yet, my question to them is, but do you really believe what it says? You know, there's a lot of power. I'll give you an example. You know, I mentioned just a moment ago about the funeral home. Grissom Martin Funeral Home, and I have, I don't even know, can't even tell you, I've never even bothered to count how many funerals that I've preached in my 22 years, 20, well, 25 years of, of being in ministry. Don't, I don't have any idea, but quite a few. And I also don't know how many of those I have either referred to or have participated in a funeral with another pastor or have attended a funeral where someone else was preaching where the 23rd Psalm was either read or preached on. And here is what I have, I heard this statement made when I was a kid, and I know it to be true even still today. Because the Bible is living and active and powerful, you can hear the 23rd Psalm read and preached and shared in a funeral a hundred times. And when you are willing to listen to what the Bible actually says, even a familiar passage that you might even be able to recite backwards, 
God speaks through something that you may have heard a hundred times, but because his word is living and active, it impacts your life in that moment, in the right way, at just the right time, in a way that you never thought possible. Now listen, I know this to be true, and I know that this is how the Bible works. But my question to all of these Protestant churchgoers is, let me talk to the 12% of people that were polled just a year and a half ago for this research. And let me ask you, if you rarely or never read the Bible, is it honestly because you're too busy? Or is it really more that you don't really believe that the Bible can help? can help a problem that you're going through, can comfort you in a way that you need it to, can really speak to an issue that you're dealing with, why do you not read the Bible? If it is what it says that it is, why are you not turning to it? You know, it it went without saying, and and I will put it this way and quote from this study, But this has been true for many, many years. Bible reading has been, as it says here, quote, the most predictive of spiritual maturity. In other words, you are only as mature in your spiritual faith and your journey with God as you have an intake, a healthy intake of the Bible. So if you never read the Bible, you're probably not going to have a healthy relationship with God. If you read the Bible and apply it to your life often, chances are you're going to have a much healthier walk with God. You see, and you can liken this to any relationship, but just take a marriage relationship, for example. If your spouse had things that they wanted to share with you that were personal, that, that you know, could help you and encourage you and build you up and maybe give you advice, and, and you had some for them as well. And, you know, you had things, words that you wanted to share and you want to tell them that you love them. You want to tell them that you care about them. You want to tell them you appreciate them. You want to maybe give them a word of encouragement or advice or wisdom or whatever. But the two of you just, even though you had those things to say, you never talked to each other. Never once. How effective would your relationship really be? And a lot of people want to pretend that they can have a healthy relationship with God and never hear anything he has to say. Just doesn't work that way. You know, that's why the other predictive measure of spiritual maturity is prayer. Because Bible reading in so many ways is you listening to God. And prayer is your opportunity to pour your heart out to him. Now, a lot of times in prayer, God just confirms and comforts and directs. I mean, I have, I have gotten up off of my knees or, you know, picked my head up after praying with just a God-size direction of, you know, this is what the Lord is, is desiring of me. So a lot of times in prayer, yes, it's me telling God what's on my heart, but so many times, you know, I just sense the Lord's leadership and what he desires of me. And, the, and so those two spiritual maturity markers will really determine how healthy your relationship is with God, how much you're listening to him and how much you're willing to talk to him. So I just, I really found it interesting that, that these, you know, American Protestant Christians thought what they thought about the Bible and and in terms of Bible reading. I mean, there were other, I guess, breakdowns in terms of church attendance or church goers, you know, not necessarily a church member of belonging to a certain church, but just more more so, you know, breaking down of these people that attend a church in this particular age group, you know, here is how much, and, and then they broke it down 
terms of Bible reading, not only in terms of age of churchgoer, but even where these people lived. I found that fascinating as well. But I just have to say, the impact of this is unspeakable. And this, I don't have time to really go into uh, this very much, but the impact of Bible reading is just absolutely unspeakable. Uh, I cannot say enough about the power that God's Word has. And, and I also read another article just speaking just for a moment about prayer that when you really stop and think about the amazing, so we think about how amazing the Bible is of what God has said in generations past and what his word is still speaking today. Then you think about prayer. You know, there have been prayers recorded in the Bible. You have heard people pray. You have been hopefully at times in a church where people have gathered together to pray. And the same question I have about Bible reading is, how much do you pray? Now look, when I ask that question and I get people to respond, nobody has ever said to me, in all honesty, I pray a lot. I am a faithful prayer. What I normally hear is people say, well, I don't pray as much as I should. I don't think if any of us are really honest, I don't think any of us are as faithful to spiritual disciplines as followers of Christ as we should be. Because honestly, there's always room for improvement, right? But when we learn to pray, and when we really learn to pray about what God is doing, how God wants to move in our lives, how God wants to use us, what God is doing in the world around us, what God is doing in our family, what God is doing in our churches, when we really stop and pray, we are communicating and sharing our thoughts with the sovereign creator of the universe. And that, to me, is absolutely fascinating, stunning, awe-inspiring, and I cannot believe that God listens to me. But this is the gift of prayer. This is the beauty of the gift of a relationship with God that he gives us this opportunity and says, I want you to talk to me. You know, Jesus even crying out to God, the Bible says that he said, Abba, Father. And of course, we know, and many of you have heard, that this, the saying, the, the uh, translation of the word Abba, is really like saying dad or daddy. It's a very intimate, personal word. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a term that, that, well, it's big relationship. You know, it's a, it's a close-knit relationship. My sister, who is two years older than I am, still calls my dad daddy, and I call him dad. Uh, you know, sometimes I call him little goofy names, but you know, they, that goes both ways. He calls me goofy names too, but you know, because of that relationship, I don't call him father. Uh, I certainly don't call him by his first name and I've never called my dad, Mr. Johnson, but I call him terms of endearment, so to speak, because I have that relationship. And so this is what we're talking about with prayer. Scripture teaches us who God is, prayer gives us the avenue to talk to the God that we know he is, the one true and living God, the only. There is none other than him. He is the most high. He is king of kings and lord of lords, as the Bible says. So I really just want to encourage you this evening to spend more time reading the word of God and being absolutely amazed at what the Bible says about who God is and God's direction for your life. But I also want to encourage you to spend that time in prayer with the Lord and really just develop that relationship. Well, I, I, I can't get into the next subject without segueing into this. But I read an article the other day 
of a couple who got divorced in 1965. And they remarried 55 years later. They had sons through that first marriage. And after, you know, well over 50 years apart, they decided they were going to get back together. Both of them, age 77, they were married and then got divorced. They were married young. You know, they dated in in high school and they married young. They had children young. But when their sons passed away, they were, in a sense, brought back together. So one son actually died at the age of 25 in 1989. The other one passed away in 2001 at the age of 38. And after that time had passed without their sons, the now again husband, his name is Dennis Reynolds, said of his now wife, Diane, he said, I never stopped loving her. They were apart for 55 years. They both shared tragedy of losing their sons during their time of divorce. But because that love never stopped, they were able to come back together And now at the age of 77, they are married again. I wonder sometimes in stories like that, and the article doesn't say, and I'm sure it's in here, I just didn't didn't see it or didn't find it, and ask them, do you have any regrets? Do you regret divorcing? You know, sometimes couples will say, oh, absolutely, I wish we had stayed together. Sometimes they would say, you know, at the time, we were just not compatible anymore or whatever the the answer might be or you know they'll say at the time we thought this was the right thing to do but now we're in different seasons of our life I would have to say that with this particular couple particularly now that he says I never stopped loving her that chances are if he could go back he would do it all differently again you know and I think about our relationship that we have with God as Christians And I wonder how many of us are comfortable with taking seasons of our life, hopefully not 55, 50 plus years, but take seasons of our life off of our relationship with God where maybe for a while we were really growing, we were really studying the word, maybe something happened and it just seemed to drive us away from God could be the loss of somebody in our family. It could be the disappointment that we felt in a church. It could be a, a personal frustration that we just don't think that God can help with. Whatever it is, so many times we use those as excuses not to come to get closer to the Lord and learn more from Him and draw closer to Him, but we use those as excuses to withdraw. And I just have a feeling this particular couple that were apart for 55 years and the husband says, you know, I never stopped loving her. I almost would imagine that if he could go back those 55 years, he would have stayed with her. And so I just want to encourage you tonight before I even move on to to my last subject tonight. I just want to encourage you just, you know, just remain faithful to the Lord. Remain close to him, draw close to him, and don't let something keep you from getting closer to him. In fact, whatever those things are, use them as motivation to get even closer to him. You know, in a very strange transition to go from talking about Bible reading and prayer and drawing closer to the Lord and, you know, not using things as an excuse to withdraw from him, but rather to, to run to him. I mentioned earlier uh, in the hour 
that I'd been I did a, a Bible study this past Sunday night at our church on what the Bible says about Satan and and also kind of a recap on what the Bible says about fallen angels and demons and and even angels themselves the ones that are still under the authority of God it was a fascinating study it was it ended up being two weeks uh, so I did angels and and a good bit of the demons last Sunday and then uh, kind of revisited some of what the Bible says about demons and then covered what the Bible said about Satan this past Sunday night. And I want to do just kind of a brief summary about that and then share a couple of Bible verses that are really, really interesting in the Old Testament about what the Bible says about Satan. So I found this article that is just kind of bullet points of what the Bible says and what you need to know about Satan himself. And so I want to go through these kind of quickly, um, mainly just because for some of you, this may be something that you already know, but for some of you, uh, maybe things that you need to be comforted by whenever you hear what the Bible actually says. Well, first of all, Satan is not eternal. He was a, and is a created angel who, as I'm going to share in just a moment, was the uh, most beautiful angel, but he is not in direct opposition of Jesus. In other words, it's not like Jesus and Satan are doing a, a cosmic uh, spiritual boxing match and we're just kind of waiting to see who wins. Jesus is God and he is the son of God and Satan is a fallen angel that has limited power and authority and it he is, again, uh, not eternal. He is and was created. And he is, uh, so you can think of it as the opposite of the archangel Michael. So God had appointed and has appointed Michael, the archangel, as like his top uh, highest ranking in authority and power uh, angel. And so you can kind of think of the opposite of that being Satan but definitely not the opposite of Jesus, not even close. The Bible talks about, I'm going to get to these passages in just a moment, in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, that Satan rebelled against God and left his position of authority. And so these are, are really fascinating passages. We're going to get back to that. The most, I guess the 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 name that is used the most is the name Satan. And that literally means adversary. You have other titles like devil, you have slanderer, you have accuser, um, all of these names, the dragon, the beast, the ruler, or the prince of the air, the prince of the power of the air. All of these are names that are kind of interchangeably used to talk about Satan, this you know, fallen, uh, top fallen angel. But it also says that he's the evil one. He is the god of this age, uh, the ruler of demons. That is found in in the in the Gospels uh, four times, and in Second Corinthians six. So he's the prince or the ruler of demons. Uh, so there's again, there's lots of them. Uh, destroyer. Liar, you know, these are all qualities and characteristics of Satan that, that the Bible talks about. He is in direct opposition of the good news of Jesus Christ. So Satan's uh, MO, so to speak, his method of operation, the way that he desires to disrupt the church and Christians is to distract, is to accuse, is to lie, is to uh, manipulate and, and basically to be an irritant to what God desires to do in the local church and around the world through the work of the gospel. Um, there are times in the, in the Bible, uh, particularly in the gospels, where he caused and his fallen angels caused sickness, uh, demon possession. All of these are signs of the spirit realm interacting with the physical realm. Uh, Jesus talked about him being a liar, a murderer. Again, these are just kind of bullet point facts about Satan of what the Bible says about him. 
but he desires persecution of the saints, of Christians. Uh, he desires to have disunity and division among Christians and particularly in churches. There have been times that God, particularly as you see in the book of Job, where God has allowed Satan to have certain access to, um, uh, to interact with and, and to wreak havoc in someone's life. We also see in the Gospels when Jesus is tempted out in the wilderness for 40 days, he is tempted by Satan himself. And the Bible records several of those more prominent ways that Satan tempted him. So there are, again, there are several uh, you know, key elements of, of how Satan operates, what he desires to do. And then, of course, you know, the Bible talks about the spirit realm and how there are powers and forces and authorities that are at work that we don't even see. And, of course, this is why being a believer in Jesus, being a child of God, Having the Holy Spirit in my life, guiding and directing me, gives me all kinds of peace that I don't have to sit and worry and be filled with anxiety of what Satan and his fallen angels want to do because I have confidence that based on the authority of the Word of God, uh, that God is, is all-powerful and He is in control. And then finally, you know, the last kind of um, description, I guess, of, of Satan is that he has fallen angels that are under his authority. Uh, the Bible says in, Re in Revelation chapter 12 that the dragon, the, the, the beast, fell from the sky. Of course, Jesus mentions in the Gospel of Luke that he saw Satan fall like lightning from the sky. But in Revelation chapter 12, when it talks about the great dragon, this, this analogy of Satan, it says that his tail swept a third of the stars with him, meaning that one third of all of the angels fell with Satan, leaving two thirds of heaven's angels remaining in heaven. So thanks be to God that uh, the overwhelming majority of angels are still under the control of, of the Lord but that a third of the angels fell with him. So he does have those uh, within the spirit realm here uh, in the world under his authority. So in Ezekiel chapter 28, there is a description. And I described it this way to the folks on Sunday night, that this passage of scripture has a fuller kind of a double meaning or a double interpretation Ezekiel 28 was written about the king of Tyre, uh, this region of the world, and, and there is and was a direct interpretation in the moment, but there is, and you'll notice this almost right off of the beginning, uh, there is a fuller, deeper interpretation where we know that this passage of Scripture is intended primarily to describe the fall of Satan. Listen to what Ezekiel 28, beginning in verse 12, says. This is against the king of Tyre. Thus says the Lord God. Listen to this. It says, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Then in verse 13 he says, You were in Eden, the garden of God. Now, just kind of pause here for a second. That's kind of how we know that it has to be talking about Satan and not the king of Tyre because the king of Tyre couldn't possibly have been in the Garden of Eden. The only three people that were said, not including God, of course, but the only three people that were said to have been in the Garden of Eden was Adam, Eve, and the serpent who came to tempt them. And then Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden after they sinned, and of course Satan was as well, and a flaming uh, a cherub with flaming swords guarded the Garden of Eden so that no one could come back in. So it has to be interpretation about Satan. But it says, every precious stone was your covering in verse 13. Now listen down uh, in the end of verse 13. It says, on the day that you were created, 
They were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Then it says this in verse 17, Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire from out of your midst, and it consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. My goodness. God has cast Satan down to the earth where his current place of dominion is, But even there, he has already pronounced judgment upon him. And the book of Revelation says in chapters 18 and 19, and then again in in fuller meaning in chapter 20, the pit, the deep abyss is going to be unlocked and Satan and his demons are going to be thrown under lock and key forever. This is the sentence from the start to the end that we find in Ezekiel chapter 28. He has embarrassed, he has judged, and he has dealt swiftly with the sin of Satan, who, because of his beauty and his wisdom, chose to exalt himself. I mean, God says there in, in, in Ezekiel 28, you know, you were there on the holy mountain of God. And from there, you sinned. Now, what was the sin of Satan? Well, that's what Isaiah 14 talks about. Isaiah 14, in the same way, has a fuller meaning, a double uh, interpretation, if you will. And now it's talking about Babylon. Now, Babylon, in the book of Revelation, I mentioned this a little bit last week, is the name for the city that's going to be set up somewhere on the earth by the Antichrist. Babylon is a kind of a code word for the name of this this place, this hub of power and authority that during the last half of the seven-year tribulation, so the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation, after the church is raptured out, then the Bible describes in Revelation chapter 16 and 17 and 18 and even into 19 that this city of Babylon is set up by the Antichrist and that's going to be where he rules from and he's going to gather the nations together and they're going to march into the land of Israel and seek to destroy the land of Israel. And that's when the Bible says in Revelation chapter 19 that the Lord Jesus comes back on a white horse with all of us behind him and with the sword that comes from his mouth, the word of God, he destroys the Antichrist and he destroys their army. But in Isaiah 14, the Bible backs up and says, well, about this Babylon, You see, there have been other moments in the Bible where the image of Babylon has been used and the name of Babylon and even the country itself of Babylonia have taken advantage of God's people. Sometimes because of sinful activity, like what I just mentioned to you with the Antichrist, sometimes because God allowed Babylon to rise up and to take his people captive whenever they sinned against him back when the temple was destroyed. This is why we have the book of Daniel and all of those prophecies. 
because that's the time of, of Babylon. But listen to this in, in, in Isaiah chapter 14. He talks in verse 12, and he says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the one who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? See, this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 14 again, has meaning in other, in, in, in other ways and other places, but the, the day star, this is a direct link to Revelation chapter 12 saying that angels and the analogy of angels is like a star. And here in Isaiah 14, we have the brightest star. We have the most beautiful star, the same type of analogy and, and explanation that we've just read in Ezekiel 28. The most beautiful creation that God ever made. And now in Isaiah chapter 14, the Bible says that what his sin was is he wanted to ascend the mountain of God and he wanted to sit on top of that mountain and be just like the Most High. Let me just tell you that this is the greatest sin that you and I have ever committed. Now what you think, wait a minute, now we're talking about Satan here. Satan you know, wanted to ascend to the top of the mountain and he wanted to be like God. But this is what we do. Anytime we trust us more than we trust God, then essentially we are saying we are our own God. We can handle it. I don't need God to do this. I've got it myself. Satan was a little bit more blatant in his sin because not only did he want to handle it, he wanted to be like God in his power, in his splendor, in his worship, in every way he wanted to be like God. Here's the problem. Nothing that has ever been created can be exalted to the same status as the Creator. This is why God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who have not been created but rather are the agents of creation, are the only ones that deserve worship and anything less than God should worship the holiness, the superiority, the authority of God. And Satan, as wonderful and beautiful and wise and all of that that he was, exchanged his place of all that God had given him, and instead of worshiping God for who God was, he desired to be like God. Now, I say all of that to say this. Why does any of that matter to you? It matters because of this. Satan does not want you to worship him. Satan wants you to worship you. His main objective is not for you to be a follower of his. His main objective is for you to trust you more than you trust God. Because he is already defeated and his plan is already exposed, then all he desires to do is to take as many people to hell with him as possible. And friend, I'm here to tell you that the only way that you and I can avoid the sentence of hell and the only way that we can have eternal life with the Lord Jesus Christ is to trust him, to put our faith and trust in Jesus, 
to keep our eyes fixed on him and to know that when our life is over, that we belong to him. So I wanted to share that with you. I hope that that was an encouragement to you tonight. I appreciate you joining me and sticking with me for this entire hour. If you missed any of this, go to my podcast tomorrow, which is called Walk This Way. You search for it and find it at anchor.fm backslash walk this way. Hope you have a great rest of the week. I'm afraid the masquerade is